Hello everyone, and welcome back to another bonus episode here on Patreon, for the month of September. Last bonus episode, we looked at the first Persian invasion of 492 and 490, from the Persians' perspective, with us looking at the question, did the Persians have the intention of subjugating all of Greece through these campaigns? This saw us look at both the campaigns from a top-down view, covering over the major details, to try and answer this question. From the information we have today to work with, and our use of educated guesswork, it would appear that it seemed likely that Persia had more limited aims with these campaigns. The Greeks themselves and the recorded sources had the impression that Persia was bent on taking all of Greece, though they may have come to this conclusion through hindsight, as our sources were well aware of Xerxes' campaign that would come ten years later. They appear to interpret this first invasion with the Persian intentions of the second. When it comes down to it, the campaigns of the 490s seemed to lack the resources for capturing all of Greece, and as we saw, they even lacked the resources to take what appeared to be their more limited aims. So now that we have familiarised ourselves with an overview of the first Persian invasion, I want to now get to the Battle of Marathon, which would prove to be a decisive moment in the campaign of 490. For me personally, I've always found this battle to be fascinating and never tire of reading about it. I think what makes this battle so engaging for me are the many questions that remain somewhat unanswered to this day. It is with this context that I would like to delve back into the Battle of Marathon over the next few bonus episodes. This episode I've titled Questions at Marathon, and I would like to outline a number of areas where these are still asked today. So, for this episode, we will move our way through the different phases of the battle, reacquainting ourselves with what unfolded. As we do this, we will expand on the different points where questions around the battle arise. This will then give us a good refresher on the battle and set us up for the episodes that will follow. With the questions outlined through these different phases, I would then like to take each one in turn and devote a bonus episode to each. This then allowing us to explore each area in isolation. With these, we will delve into the different points of view and see if we can arrive at what might have been taking place based on the information available to us today. So let's now turn to how the Battle of Marathon would develop and unfold. After the Persian forces had captured and enslaved the people of Eritrea on the island of Euboea, they would depart in their ships sailing down the eastern coast of Attica, where they would land at the Bay of Marathon. We are told by Herodotus that the old tyrant of Athens, Hippias, would lead the forces here as it was the most suitable place for cavalry to operate. Remembering how we were told, that the Persian preparations for this campaign had involved the construction of specialty ships for the horses. The Bay Area at Marathon would spread out into a large plain that would then be surrounded by a series of rugged hills. These hills would have a number of exits that would then lead into the interior of Attica, and Athens which lay 40 kilometres away. The Persian ships appear to have landed at the top of the bay where a terrain feature known as a dog's leg would emerge from. We will look closer at this next episode, where it will feed into our first point of questioning we'll be focusing on, this having to do with the disposition of forces. Once the Athenians had received word of the actions of the Persians, they would march their army out from Athens and to Marathon. The Athenians would be led by ten generals, one from each political tribe in Athens, where each tribe would be made up of approximately a thousand hoplites each. An eleventh general would also accompany the army and be given a position of authority over the others, with him being known as a polemarch. Leading this Athenian force would be the polemarch Callimachus. However, Athens would seek help in meeting the Persian landings at Marathon. It would appear as the Athenians were readying to leave for Marathon, a herald would be sent to the small polis of Plataea, 
while once at Marathon, another who Herodotus identifies as Philippides would be sent to seek aid from Sparta. The Plataeans would answer Athens' call, for they had previously placed themselves under Athens' protection when they were having troubles with Thebes. A Plataean force of a thousand strong would march into the area of Marathon, just as the Athenians had taken up their position to oppose the Persians. This force would have represented the entire contingent of hoplites that this small city-state would have been able to field. As for Sparta, they would tell the Herald that they would like to march in aid of Athens, but the current festival that they were observing prevented them from crossing their borders. They would need to wait until the next full moon before they could march. So this would see that there would be somewhere around 11,000 Greek hoplites at Marathon, where they would oppose perhaps some 25,000 Persians. Herodotus would tell us that the Athenians had taken up a position in the precinct of Heracles, this being where they would make their camp. It's not 100% certain where this was located in the areas around Marathon, but it's thought to perhaps be at the base of the hills towards the bottom end of the bay, which also oversaw the coastal road leading out of the plains towards Athens. However, we will be looking closer at this next episode. There would be much debate in the Athenian camp over the action that they should take. Some would be for not engaging the Persians as they judged their own forces too small, while the other half, with the general Miltiades as their loudest proponent, would argue that they should fight. Miltiades would present a speech to the others where opinion remained divided. However, he was able to convince the polemarch, Callimachus, to attack the Persians. We would hear that a standoff would continue for some days, until it was Miltiades' turn to command the army. Apparently each day, command of the army would pass to each general. Once Miltiades' turn came, he would have the army deployed, which in turn would have seen the Persian forces deployed. It seems likely that this deployment probably took place each day, so both sides were prepared for battle, but would then stand down once it was clear nothing was going to develop. It's this issue of the deployment that we'll be focusing on for the most part next episode, as there has been different interpretations of how the armies formed up to fight the Battle of Marathon. For the most part, there would be two theories, one saying that they deployed parallel to the sea, with the other seeing that they formed up with the right and left flanks respectively pointing out to the sea. Though there are also some variations on these that have also been put forward. We will be exploring these in much more detail next bonus episode. Part of this deployment would also see how the Athenians would arrange their line of battle. On the day that Miltiades took command of the army, where he had the intention of giving battle, the line of battle would see the right wing commanded by Callimachus, as it was customary for the polemarch to take the position of honour. Then we are told that the Athenian tribes then deployed in their regular order down the line from this point. Then on the left wing would be the contingent of hoplites from Plataea. Herodotus would then go on to describe how this line of battle would then be altered from the normal practice. He would tell us that the centre of the Athenian line would be weakened, this seeing the ranks of the centre being fewer than normal in an effort to extend the Athenian line. This was done, according to Herodotus, so that the Greek line could extend far enough to match the Persians' frontage. This would help see that the Greek line would be more resistant to being flanked by the Persian wings. This will be one of the points that we'll be focusing on for our next question that we will investigate further. This question will revolve around the notion that the Greeks during this period lacked tactical thinking. However, I will be arguing that this was most probably not the case, and if anything, it was the writers of the period, such as Herodotus, that lacked tactical thinking on military matters.
We will also look at a number of other elements during the battle that would suggest that there was a tactical mindset at play. We will see this in other areas of the Greek deployments, as well as a couple of other questions we'll be looking at in some detail. The first of these other questions we will be dealing with would come when the Greek line would finally be given the command to move forward towards the Persians. This is the extent of the detail Herodotus gives us on the decision to move, though in the Suda, a lexicon dating to the 10th century AD that was kept in Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul, a term is recorded that is connected to the Battle of Marathon, this being a phrase, the cavalry are away, which would signify the Greek line getting underway. This issue we will deal with in the context of Greek tactical thinking, though we will also be looking at the wider question in another episode of where was the Persian cavalry, with this being one of the biggest mysteries around the Battle of Marathon. As we have spoken about, Herodotus specifically mentions the Persians making preparations for the transport of cavalry while the Persians were preparing to cross the Aegean. We would hear that they would be employed when landing on Euboea, and even though Herodotus points out that the Persians landed at Marathon Bay due to its suitability for cavalry, we never hear any more mention of Persian cavalry for the remainder of the campaign. This command to send the Greek line forward would also see us deal with another question that has been continually asked. Herodotus would say that the Athenian line would advance towards the Persians at a run, not less than a mile away. This type of action would be out of the ordinary for a hoplite army, and Herodotus would continue. They were the first Greeks, so far as we know, to charge at a run. This would then lead to many asking if this was possible for a Greek army made up of heavy infantry in formation to run at the enemy for a mile, and then still be in a condition to fight. We will look at this question closer when we do our episode around Greek tactical thinking, as it would also prove to potentially highlight the intention for tactics on the battlefield. So now, getting back to what was taking place on the battlefield, we now have the Greek line advancing towards the Persians at a run. The Persians, who would have been formed up in their lines of battle, would now rush to ensure that they were prepared to meet the charge. When the Greeks had formed up, no doubt the Persians would have done the same. This sort of thing would have gone on day after day. So, with the beginning of this day, the Persian commanders were probably expecting that a battle would not develop again. The Greeks' sudden jolt into action seems to have caught the Persians by surprise. Although formed up in lines of battle, they may not have been ready for a fight mentally. Herodotus would say at this point, The Persians seeing the attack developing at a double, prepared to meet it, thinking it suicidal madness for the Athenians to risk an assault with so small a force rushing in with no support from either cavalry or archers. Once the two lines clashed, we would hear that the struggle would be long and drawn out. In this melee that developed, we would hear about the Athenian centre again. The centre, as we have said, was the weakest part of the Athenian line, and it was opposing the better part of the Persian line, where their more heavily armed troops were positioned. These Persian forces in the centre were able to break the Greek centre, seeing the reduced strength phalanxes fall back. The Persians who caused this breakthrough would then continue to advance into this gap as they pursued the defeated Greek troops. However, this would see the better part of the Persian line finding themselves in a dangerous position. Meanwhile, the right and left flanks of the Greek line had been opposing some of the more lightly equipped Persian troops. The Greek flanks were able to rout the Persian flanks, and instead of pursuing them, the two Greek flanks would come together and would now fall upon the advancing Persians in the centre cutting them off from the rest of the Persian forces. 
This would now see the tables turned and the Persian heavy troops would now be routed. A chaotic scene on the plains of Marathon would now develop, leading down to the beaches, with a rush of disorganised Persian troops scattering towards the sea, trying to make the safety of their ships. Meanwhile, the Greeks were probably completely broken from their formations and were now rushing to catch the enemy before they could escape. The fight would continue down at the Persian ships, with the Athenians attempting to set fire to as many Persian vessels as they could. It would be down at the battle around the ships where Herodotus would tell us about a number of notable Athenians falling, with the Polemarch Callimachus being one. The Greeks were able to destroy seven of the Persian ships down at the shore during the melee there. However, the rest of the fleet were able to put back out to sea during the chaos that was going on. The Persians would then make for the small island of Agilia, where they had left the prisoners taken from Eritrea before landing at Marathon. From here, a course was set to sail around the southern Attic coastline and make for a suitable landing spot to descend on Athens directly. The Athenian forces at Marathon had seen the direction of sail of the Persian fleet and seeing that it was still mostly intact, feared that it would make a direct assault on Athens. The Athenians now prepared the army to march back to Athens at once, since the city was now unguarded. It's also here that we'll turn to another question over this battle, and that would have to do with the origins of the Marathon Run. For this tale, we need to pick up Plutarch, who records the run back to Athens, that a man named Pheidippides would conduct. Word of the victory at Marathon would be carried back to Athens as quickly as possible, with presumably a warning of the approach of the Persian fleet. Pheidippides would run as fast as he could after having also fought at Marathon, back some 40 kilometres to Athens. As per the tale Plutarch records, he would make it back to Athens completely out of breath and would use the last of his strength to yell Nikkei Nikkei or victory, before then dying on the spot. This would become the inspiration for the modern marathon run. Though, did this really take place? It seems odd that Herodotus would omit such a feat from his histories if it had taken place. The first time we learn of this run back to Athens would be through Plutarch some 600 years after the event. However, we will look much closer at this reported event when we try and answer if Pheidippides' marathon run actually took place. Meanwhile, back at Marathon, the two tribes who made up the phalanxes in the centre and had taken the heaviest casualties would remain at Marathon to guard the prisoners, while the rest of the army made ready to conduct their own marathon, a 40km march back to Athens before the Persian fleet would arrive. The army would in fact make it back to Athens before the Persian fleet had come into sight and they would establish a camp at another site sacred to Heracles, since it had proved to their advantage when at Marathon. When the Persians did finally come into sight, they would lay off the coast at Athens' port. However, seeing that the Athenian army was there to oppose their landing, and not going anywhere, the commanders decided to turn back out to the Aegean, where they would then eventually sail back for Anatolia. This then bringing the first Persian invasion of Greece to an end. The Battle of Marathon would be the final battle in the first Persian invasion and the first against the Athenians on their home soil. Herodotus would tell us that 6,400 Persians would fall during the battle, from a total of 20,000 to 25,000 that modern estimates put the Persian army at. In contrast, he would report that the Athenians would lose 192 men, these for the most part coming from the weakened centre that had been routed. Burial mounds would be constructed on the battlefield of Marathon one for the Athenians and one for the Plataeans, with both mounds still visible today. The Spartans would end up marching for Marathon after the full moon had taken place, 
Herodotus says it took them three days to reach Attica, though we are unsure if they had departed Sparta before the battle took place or after. Though they would arrive at Marathon to learn that the Athenians had defeated the Persians, and after seeing the battlefield, they would praise the Athenians on their efforts. This would mark the end of the first Persian invasion for the Greeks, though as we are aware, this would not be the end of Persian interests in Greece, with Xerxes returning ten years later. However, this brings an end to our survey of the Battle of Marathon, where it was my intention to recap how the battle unfolded, while also pointing out some of the larger questions that still float over this battle today. In the coming bonus episodes, it's these questions that we'll be focusing on and looking at in more detail, to see if we can bring some clearer understanding to what was taking place. We will first begin with the question around the disposition of forces on the battlefield, with us also looking at where the Athenians established themselves and where the Persians made their camp. As we will see, a number of interpretations have arisen to how the forces would oppose one another, and we'll look to these in more detail. The next question we will turn to will be around the notion that the Greeks lacked tactical thinking. Here we will look more closely at some of the decisions and actions that the Greeks took and see if more than chance and impulse were at play. We will then look at one of the biggest questions to come from Marathon, this being around where the Persian cavalry was. Through Herodotus' account, we get glimpses of their importance to the campaign, but then when at Marathon, we hear nothing of them. Then finally, we will turn to look at if the very first Marathon run was conducted after the battle, with Pheidippides running back to Athens with all his strength to deliver his message, as Plutarch reports and it providing inspiration for the Marathon race of our modern times. Thank you everyone for your continued support here on Patreon. I'd like to give a special shout out to Lexi M and Thomas for recently signing up to support the series here. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you everyone and I will see you for next month's bonus episode on the dispositions at Marathon.